listening to a message from Park Springs Bible Church, located in Arlington, Texas, where we discover life in the power of God's grace and share His life-changing grace with others. Join us as we hear from the Word. Well, good morning. Uh, Welcome again to Park Springs Bible Church. We're uh, excited and grateful that you're worshiping with us this morning. Uh, I just want to back things up a bit as we're kind of completing this sermon series on vision. I want us to uh, look all the way back from uh, four weeks ago when we started this um, vision series, just communicating about the reality of, of who we are very convinced that the Lord has communicated who, who we are as a people. And the analysis from the first, uh, January 1st, the first uh, sermon of this series, was that the two greatest problems that we face as a church are people without the gospel, people without Christ, and a church without the gospel. That the sense that we have, and that is really what's compelling all of this talk about vision and who we are as a church is to realize that the diagnosis from the scriptures is that the greatest need that people have in the world is an intimate abiding relationship with Jesus Christ. Now there are thousands of other things that they might say they need to feel loved, accepted, valued, and important, but the the biblical analysis of the, the microscope that the word puts over the top of every human heart from all places in all cultures at all times is that you need Jesus. That saving intimate relationship with Christ. And so one of the greatest things that God has called us to be a part of is not just recognizing a world that doesn't believe in Christ, but being involved in in how we are a part of the work that God is doing. Two greatest challenges that we face in our world is a, a world without Christ and a church without the gospel. Meaning that church can do church, so we can grease the machinery of what it means to functionally do church with the concept of traditions and liturgy, and we can have expectations of what what a church is about, but what, what we would say is that the fundamental primary starting point of the church being the church is that it puts itself under the headship of Jesus Christ and does so by abiding in the reality of God's word, right? John 15, my My words abide in you, your words abide in me, you bear much fruit. That that the substance of who we are is centered around the life-transforming power of the scriptures. So God has set the roadmap for us and that our desire is to look at the truth of God's word and realize how it shapes, informs, transforms. The Bible even tells us that it, it corrects and trains us in righteousness, that we should have an expectation that as the word of God is opened in the midst of the people of God, change begins to happen. They see, we see our need for the truth of who God is, and then we discover more truly who God actually is, not how he's been manufactured by our own hearts or by the world. And so in the process of being changed, we come to this reality that we're involved in a relationship with Jesus Christ, and the two fundamental things that are so critical for us in moving forward as a church is realizing that we want to be involved and communicating the life-transforming power of the gospel to the world who doesn't know. So Jesus came to seek and save the lost. We want to be a part of that. 
So a, a world without Jesus compels us to say we want to be involved in that work and that mission, and we want to be a church that centers itself around the gospel, meaning that the life, the truth, the reality of who Jesus was and is in his life, der- life, burial, life, death, burial, and resurrection has such an enormous impact on how we see ourselves and how we function in this world that we want to be consistently reminding one another that we are dependent on the life-rescuing grace of Jesus daily. Not just a moment where we placed our faith in Christ for salvation, although that was certainly true, but that daily we come to this awareness that we're being changed and transformed by the power of God's grace, and we need it in every aspect of our lives, from relationships with coworkers to relationships with family to relationships with friends. We are constantly made aware of our own need for the life-transforming power of God's grace at work in our life. So our mission statement is, pretty catchy, I think pretty, pretty clear. We want to discover life in the power of God's grace, and we want to share that life-changing grace with others, meaning that we want to plant our flag in the reality that God's grace is what is sufficient, that his power is made perfect in our weakness, that we come as needy people knowing that God himself through the power of Jesus Christ and the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is precisely what is implementing change and drawing us into a deeper, more intimate relationship with Jesus. So the greatest problems, right, a world without Christ and a church without the gospel, our vision, the vision of Park Springs, is trying to compete to to move against those places and to make sure that we're setting ourselves up on the truth of who God is and on his word. So we've done that in five ways, right? Participating in spiritual formation, which means what we're saying is that we're engaged. We're jumping into the reality of what God has called us to, and we want, there's a a hunger and a yearning, I almost said a hungering, a yearning and a hunger for God to do a work in us. We want to be changed. In the process of that, we also want to be a home for the hurting. So we want to pursue the reality of what it means that we don't want to put up any walls or barriers for individuals to come and experience that life-transforming power. So we pursue diversity, doing it in such a way that what we're saying is that whether it's socioeconomic or uh, generational or ethnic, we want to be a place where an individual can find a home and experience that transforming power. We want them to be a part of God's family and discovering life in the power of God's grace. And then what we also want to do is to realize that in the process of that, we're going to meet uh, difficulties in the midst of challenges and relationships as well as our own emotional baggage that we bring to the table. We should expect that. We should expect that as we encounter God's word, there's things that are going to be happening inside of us that we see and we're like, I don't think God wants that to be there. And he's not saying, yeah, now that you see it, go fix it. He's saying that in the midst of a relationship with Jesus Christ, there are transforming work that's being done. And so what we want to do is grow. We want to grow in maturity. We want to grow in emotional and relational health. We want to see that as God works in us, that union with Christ means change. That you are yet, and maybe it's a surprise to you, I am not either yet perfected. You and I need to be changed, just FYI. And so in the process of that, we're aware of that. So we want to draw this thread through all that we're doing and realizing that as we discover life in the power of God's grace and we share that life-changing grace with others, we're addressing it from the standpoint of a world without Jesus and a church without the gospel. So the gospel is the thread that runs through all of those pieces. And then it, it, it does what? It compels us to reach out in mission. 
that, that grace received, as Jared so eloquently said, is, is grace extended. That the change that the Lord has done and is doing in your life is certainly significant just for you, but it's not just for you. That there are people that are coming across your, your life and experiences, and whether it's casual interactions or, or you're doing life with family, everything that the Lord is doing in your life, he's, he's changing, transforming, providing comfort, as, and he does that. He, you're able to comfort others. Your, your story that the Lord is writing matters. And it matters because God is writing that story and doing that change and pruning our lives, but doing so for the sake of not just you and others, but ultimately for his glory. Like he's got a bigger plan than you and I could ever ask or imagine. And so we're thinking about this gospel thread that's running through all of the aspects of our vision and mission, and and where does it lead us? It leads us to the conversation of worship. Now, I imagine for many of us, as we think about worship, we thought about coming to a Sunday service. And my desire this morning, not to be uh, uh, overstated, is to, to literally blow that whole idea up. And, and I think it's because the, the Bible does. Like, what I want to suggest to you this morning is worship did not begin when you started singing. I'd like to suggest to you this morning that you've been worshiping all week. Sometimes, in ways in which it honor the Lord and you move closer to him. Sometimes we have worshiped this week false things. We have idols inside of our heart that have been drawing us to different areas of of comfort or approval or control, something that has been motivating our hearts for things that we've longed for specific things to happen more than we've longed for God himself. And so what I'd like to suggest to you this morning is Paul David Tripp said, worship is an identity long before it's an activity. This is critical because what it means is it it couches our understanding in what it means to truly worship. You come as a person who's been divinely created as a worshiper. Inside, embedded in your identity, is this desire to worship something. And when we think about worship, what it means to, to bow down or surrender to, that's kind of the image that God gives us in the context of Scripture. So that means that there are elements of our lives that as we think about worship what we're doing is we're surrendering control of our lives to stuff to things it's either god preeminently which is where we need to direct our worship or it's a whole host of other things that are occupying our hearts and minds that we're bowing down and surrendering our heart and emotions to so what i want to do this morning as we unpackage as best as i can our vision of joining together in worship is do it from a very foundational micro level. And what I want to look at is the scripture communicates in two specific passages, our hearts. What's going on inside as we think about the diagnostics of God's word at work in trying to help us understand what we're really worshiping? Where are our hearts and affections really tied to? So Isaiah 29 is going to be the primary text this morning. And let me give you a backdrop of the reason why Isaiah is writing what he's writing. So 8th century BC, the nation of Judah is not doing all that hot. They enjoyed some times of of life and things had been good for a while. They had great leadership and then King Uzziah dies and then Isaiah jumps in as one of the prophets and the, the, the nation itself, God's people, begin to sort of dismantle. But where did that dismantling occur? (laughs) It occurred in a couple of ways. 
One is that they began to develop alliances and allegiances with the world. They found themselves concerned about the surrounding areas and thought that the best way to protect the nation was to take it upon themselves to develop alliances that God said not to do and be able to sort of protect themselves and make their own decisions. And so now there's all this geopolitical pressure. And then they also have embedded in that in this sense of worship, it had become somewhat formulaic. It was so formalized in what they did and how they experienced God that if, if I'm honest, it had become pretty stale. And so you get stale worship combined with pressures from the outside and a, a real kind of dismantling of who God really is and this intimate connection with the God of the universe and things begin to spiral down pretty quickly. Isaiah shows up on the scene and continues to communicate to the people to turn, to repent, to, to trust in God and remember how great he is and how magnificent God is and, and just trusting his power and provision over our ability to think that we can figure out how to protect ourselves. So he's telling the nation of Judah in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 29 is, is really that centerpiece of how he's dealing with hard-hearted worship. This worship that as best as can be described is formulaic, the worst that it can be described is fake. That you know what to do and you know what to say, but your heart's not in it. That, that's the analysis of Isaiah's indictment against the nation. They've lost the connection with the God of the universe who has done so much for them. But, but why then start in Isaiah 29? Well, because again, this is the same indictment that Jesus has against the Pharisees in Matthew 15. So there's a universal reality that we as humanity can find ourselves falling away. Even we, we have hymns that sing about it, right? And we've sung those words a hundred times before. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Right? There's something inside of us that in the midst of circumstances or challenges or just even our own inadequate worship, our own failings, our own emotions, our own challenges, we find ourselves distancing ourselves from the very reality of the love of God through faith in Jesus Christ as he's secured for us that intimacy. What we do is we have this collision course of values, what we want and what God's doing. <laughs> And sometimes they're not on the same page. And so our hearts tend to default to thinking that we know what's best. And from the nation of Judah to the Pharisees to even us here at Park Springs Bible Church, I would like to suggest to you this morning that that war rages inside of us moment by moment. So it's true what Paul David Tripp says, that worship is an identity long before an activity. Then let's ask ourselves, who are we? And what are we worshiping? There's two definitions of worship that I, I saw, and we can have tons of definitions, but here's a few that I'd like to suggest to you this morning. Worship is the odd response to the saving acts and praiseworthy, praiseworthy character of God. Worship is the reverential response of creation to the all-encompassing magnificence of God. That's a lot to internalize, but here, if I could boil it down as best I can, I think this is where Isaiah is going to take us is that God is more amazing than you can imagine. And that even as we come in, we realize that there's been aspects of our lives throughout the course of the entire week that we have worshiped 
false things. We have put our hope, we've bowed down and surrendered our lives to things that are not of God, but more of our own making, more of our own self-indulgence, more of our own self-reliance. And God continues to show up and remind us that what? God is awesome. Like the magnificence of God displayed through the scriptures and through all of creation, there is nothing that holds comparison to him whatsoever. There is nothing more amazing than the God of the universe and he is worthy to be worshiped. And yet we have surrendered our hearts to lesser things. And so God redirecting us on a regular basis, if worship is an identity before it's an activity, then I come in to church as a worshiper. I've worshiped things and there are things that have competed against the affections of my heart daily. And what do I long for? What do I need the reminder of? The universal church, God's church, even Park Springs Bible Church as a local church, I need those reminders that God is at work in innumerable ways. And I join together in worship with my brothers and sisters in Christ because we're on the same journey. God is writing the same narrative. It ends in his glory and we don't need to surrender our hearts to the things that aren't gonna pay and, or that actually aren't gonna provide the enjoyment that we're looking for. Christ and God are the only things that are worth giving our affections to. Let me uh, have you look with me in Isaiah chapter 29, and we're going to start in verse 13. And again, this is the analysis of a, a country or a nation, God's people, that have lost their way. And he's putting under the microscope their heart, and he's communicating where the hardness lies and why it's there. Verse 13 starts off by the Lord saying this. And the Lord said, Because this people draw near with their mouth and honor me with their lips, while their hearts are far from me, and they fear of me is a command their fear of me is a commandment taught by men. Wow, right? What an analysis. So he's saying like they, they know the right things to say. They've been a part of the religious rhythm for a significant amount of time. They know how the mechanics and the machinery of being God's people work. But they've been so convinced that it's the machinery that they want and that they can predict and not the God who created the people of God initially. It's, it's God that they need to desire, but they were able to say and do what they want but then at the same time still follow through on the religious rhythm. So they looked great on the outside, but their worship was not only stale, but it was hard because they could honor me with their lips. They said the right things, but their hearts were distant from God. So that's the analysis. So here's the corrective nature that God takes. Verse 14, Therefore, behold, I will again do wonderful things with this people, with wonder upon wonder, and the wisdom of their wise men shall perish, and the discernment of their discerning men shall be hidden. Ah, who, you who hide deep from the Lord your counsel, whose deeds are done in the dark, and who says, who sees and who knows us? You turn things upside down. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay that the things made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Of the thing formed say... Of him who formed it, he has no understanding. Is it not yet a very little while until Lebanon shall be turned into a fruitful field and the fruitful field shall be regarded as a forest? In that day, the deaf shall hear the works 
of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness the eyes of the blind shall see. The meek shall obtain fresh joy in the Lord, and the poor among mankind shall exalt in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless shall come to nothing, and the scoffer cease, and all who watch to do evil shall be cut off who by a word make a man out of an, uh, to be an offender and lay snare for him who reproves its gate and with empty plea turn aside him who is in the right. So here's the analysis. God, God has already said right, for, right from the very outset, their lips, their mouths, they honor me, but their hearts are far from me, that, that the affections and the need for what worship really looks like has been lost in the midst of the people of God. And so what's the answer that God gives to stale, hard-hearted worship? I mean, what does he tell them that he's going to do in response to the fact that they've pulled away from God? How is God going to respond to stale, hard-hearted worship? What does he say? Verse 14, I'm going to show them how awesome I am. I'm going to communicate to them my wonder. The goodness and magnificence of God will be revealed in so many different ways. I'm going to re-communicate to them how amazing I am and how worthy I am of my affections. Now, there's certainly some corrective action that takes place in the nation of Judah, but look how he responds initially. Is this not one of the most amazing acts of grace? Like, he's not going to say, I'm just going to cut them off. I'm done with these people. I'm going to try again somewhere else. They just never get it right. They're stiff-necked, stubborn people, and so good riddance, we're moving on. No, he's saying, I want the people of God to understand and wonder in awe the greatness of God. And that's the challenge that we face with hard-hearted worship, is that often the major thing that we've lost is we're not sure God is as great as he says he is. You know that's true. I know that's true. And how? Why is that the case? Because I look at the suffering of my own life and the suffering around me and the challenges and the circumstances and what I say is that seems more real to me than the God who says he's in control of everything else, right? It seems more tangible. It seems more predictable. Like you know that there's hardship coming our way and things are difficult and challenging. And so what ends up affecting my affections? The circumstances and the noise of life are louder than the greatness of God. And so part of recovering the greatness of God is reminding ourselves through the context of his word and joining together in worship, God is awesome. That we should be in awe of his goodness, that the greatness of who he is is so much more worthy to be worshiped than anything else. If worship is an identity long before it is an activity, then I'd like to suggest to you that humanity's greatest challenge is not atheism, it's idolatry. It's not that the church or the world doesn't believe that there necessarily is a God. They've just chosen to worship other gods, whether it's secular humanism or some level of desire for their own self-reliance or whatever it may be, every single person in all of humanity is worshiping something. And so the diagnostics of the scriptures is to say the greatest challenge is false worship. Not that worship doesn't exist or that people don't believe in God. It's that their affections and desires have been train wrecked and hijacked for other things. And so what needs to happen? Displaying the magnificence and awesomeness of God 
as the people of God that he is great, that we sing his praises of how amazing he is, that as we come in this morning as worshipers, we need consistently and chronically to be reminded that I throughout the week have made God way too small. And I say that for me. Like I've limited his power in the midst of circumstances that are so far beyond my control, I wonder how could they have ever happened. I look at the sin in my own heart and how I treated the people that I love and I say to myself, I know God has better things for me and his affections and my affections are, are more worthy to just be directed to him, but, but I have needs, I have wants, I have desires. And so I have surrendered my worship of God on the altar of my own immediate longings. And it happens all the time. Why? Because I have made God too small. And the word continues to remind us that in the midst of the people of God, God is so much bigger than we can imagine. And so here's where I'd like to suggest the, the challenge this morning is that if our hearts aren't awed, awed by the one true God, they are always awed, awed by something lesser. And odd, I don't mean O-D-D, I mean A-W-E-D, right? Like, we're, we're in awe of the great, there it is, so now you can see how it's spelled. The greatness of God in the midst of the people of God is what begins to transform our hearts and our affections. We look at the scope of the challenges that we find ourselves facing, and we realize that they're there. None of us want to minimize the hardships or just dismiss them of saying, ah, they're no big deal. They're a huge deal. But they're a place where the wonder-working, majestic, all-powerful God of the universe is doing something beyond what you can think or see. And the, the greatest thing that he's doing is drawing you and me into dependence upon him. <laughs> like, he cares about our hearts. He cares about our intimacy with him. Like, the reason and the answer for their lackluster, hard-hearted worship, God's response to those things is to say, I'm going to show you how amazingly great I am. Because somehow, in some way, what's become clouded in your heart and mind is that I'm not as good as I once was. <laughs> that somehow, in some way, the view of who you think I am is so much smaller than you thought it was years, decades, months ago. You've, your value in who I am has been diminished. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to show you the bigness, remind you that as much as your heart wants to worship false things. I am the only one worthy of your affections. I'm the only one that will tenderly care for your heart. I'm the only one that is sufficient to provide for all of your needs. I'm the only one because I've created you. And that's what he said. He said everything got flip-flopped. He said we, we turned the whole world upside down. And, and the upside downness is that you would say that the, the potter uh, is, is no longer the one in charge, but it's the clay that gets to call the shots. Like he's saying, this is ludicrous. It doesn't make any sense that we would say we get to call the shots in our life when God is the one who has fashioned us. He's drawn us into worship of him. And so the desire is to be connected with the grace and the truth of Jesus Christ, to discover life in the power of God's grace. And that even now, as a congregation of believers, we would say to one another, certainly, Lord, help me discover life in the power of God's grace. Help, help my affections. Help me worship you and be more awed by your goodness and your character than awed by the other things around me. But I would also like to suggest that you are sharing that life-changing grace with others right here and now. Now, I don't know every single one of your stories or what you're journeying through, but there's someone in your life that does. 
And as you're worshiping God and he's changing and transforming your life, as you're finding yourself continually wrestling with the things of the world and being drawn to Christ, you're, you're sharing that as you show up in church, as we join together in worship, we are collectively saying what? God is amazing. And he's so much more worthy to be worshiped than anything else in this world. And so I come here again and again because I want to tell the entire world and I want to tell one another that God is awesome. His wonders are magnificent. I do not ever want to limit how much I tell people how good God is, even in the midst of my failures and brokenness. God is amazing. So let me finish up with these last few, few uh, verses in 29. And, and, and again, Matthew 15 is that same place where Jesus gives that same analysis to the Pharisees when they're accusing Jesus and the disciples of not washing their hands, right? They've, they've gotten so formulaic that they're watching all the little details of what people do and don't do. And Jesus uses this and applies this very scripture to them and says, look, you honor me with your lips. You say what you need to say with your mouth, but your hearts are far from me. You don't really care about a relationship with God. You care about the formula. And so this is how Isaiah finishes up his conversation about hard-hearted worship. Therefore, thus says the Lord, who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob, Jacob shall no more be ashamed, no more shall his face grow pale, for when he sees his children, the work of my hands in the midst, they will sanctify my name. They will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of God, of, uh, of the God of Israel. And those who go astray in the spirit will come to understanding and those who murmur will accept instruction. And so what I'd love to suggest is that what I think Isaiah is communicating is that all of this begins to unfold. What we end up doing is discovering, even in the midst of challenges and false worship, life in God's grace. We discover that God is pursuing us and changing us in ways that we didn't even ask for or at times we're even unaware of. But in the process of the nation, here's what happens. He, he restores the name of Jacob. And, and what does he tell them? You will no longer be ashamed. I would like to suggest this morning that one of the challenges that I think you and I face most chronically in the context of our lives is that there is a level of shame embedded in our failures. We come with the recognition that we've worshiped false things. We wonder how, if people knew what we knew about our own hearts, whether or not we'd be accepted anymore or just asked to leave. And yet, as God works, there, there's a realization that there's, there's no shame at the cross. Like, that's been all taken care of. There is a, a knowledge and an understanding of what God is doing in the midst of his people. And one of the things he's doing is competing a, against a false version of ourselves. He's competing against a false version of God because we've misunderstood who he is. But we've also misunderstood who we are. Often, and that's why our invocation and benediction are what they are, I think that often we feel like we're damaged goods. That there's a place where we don't have it right and we haven't figured it out the way that we thought we should have figured it out and we should know better and we should do better and it's just not working and we wonder where we are in this whole mixture of all of these things and, and, and the truth of God's word continues to intrude in those moments and to say your value has been given to you by the God of the universe. You don't find it or work for it, right? Your, your value, who you are, your dignity as an individual has been given to you by your creator because he created you. And so in the midst of trying to diminish all of those things and think that we just don't measure up, we, we limit our understanding of who we are before God and, and who God is before us. 
And so as we begin to recover the reality of what God is doing in our lives, we, we place our faith and trust in the truth of the gospel, that we've been saved and set free, that we are his children, not just children now, and we could lose that. We're children now and forever. We've been given an inheritance. We, we've been safe and secure in intimacy with Christ. That John 17, the high priestly prayer, right? I'm never gonna lose anyone that's been given to me. Like, I'll never leave you, never forsake you. Like, the promise of what God is communicating to his people is very essentially, I got this. Trust me. Like, be drawn into intimacy with me. And so, let me suggest that worship, true worship, is God in his rightful place. The one who is in charge and working and has authority over all things, he's working in innumerable ways, in ways that we can't see. So we, we bring our whole self, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and we realize that, that God is drawing all of it to himself. We don't need to put on a facade that hard-hearted worship is trying to manufacture reality that we're better than we really are. We as believers need to realize or continue to be reminded that we need the grace of Jesus Christ today as much as we did on day one. That the challenges and the things that we face, God isn't asking your sufficiency to take care of. He's communicating that he's sufficient for all things. His power is made perfect in our weakness, not in your ability or mine. Like there's something that God is competing against in our hearts this morning and part of it is the version of worship that we've created. We've said it's about songs. We've said it's about rhythm, harmony, and melody. We've communicated that there is worship we like and worship we don't like. When in reality, what we need to be saying is that we are worshipers by identity before we are worshipers by activity. And so what we want is our worship to be directed by God's word. Now certainly, we think about the words we sing and the affections that we have as those words are being sung and we, we need to realize that certainly our worship of what we sing has to be rooted in God's word. But, but the critical component of that is us being rooted in God's word. So worship is God in his rightful place. So as we kind of conclude this morning, one of the things I want to invite you to as the uh, choir is gonna stand up, they're not running out of the building, they're coming back up forward, and I'm gonna pray for us, but as they come forward, I just, there's gonna be a, a larger time of what we would consider seeing worshiping, and the desires to worship out of our identity of who we are in Jesus. And so the, the length of time, the longer the songs, just, just press in to letting God be God, putting God in his rightful place, and allowing him to do and work in you that might even be surprising to you that we can lay down those areas of false worship those places where our hearts have been drawn to things that are not of him would you pray with me this morning lord it is solely by your goodness and your grace we merit nothing we don't bring anything to the table we need you, that your grace is what draws us, that you are active in the lives of your people and, and even in the world at large. And we want to be involved in that activity. God, that that gospel thread would run its way all the way through the areas that you're maturing us, how we're pursuing other people, how we're growing in our own walks, how we're reaching out on mission, and significantly, how we, how we worship. We want our hearts 
to honor you, that we don't want to be those who confess with our mouth things that we don't believe in our hearts. So I would ask, even now, in the midst of your people, your bride here at Park Springs, increase our wonder. Increase our wonder of you. Increase our 